0: From Latrobe Asia, this is the catch. Hello, I'm Beck Strating, the director of Latrobe Asia, and in this special mini-series, we'll be hearing about the problem of modern-day slavery and forced labor in the offshore fishing industry across the Asia-Pacific region. This is part five, support. In this episode, I'm joined by Patricia Kailola of the Human Dignity Group in Fiji, a self-funded organisation against human trafficking and for human rights at sea. Thank you for joining me, Patricia.
1: Well, thank you and good day. I'm delighted to be interviewed on this uh, subject. Patricia, you're an expert
0: in tropical fish. But during the course of your career, you've become an advocate for human rights of men who catch those fish.
1: How did you make this transition? Yes, I still am an expert in the identification of Indo-Pacific fishes, although I'm I'm a bit rusty sometimes because my attention has been moved to other things. In answer to your question, maybe 12 years ago, I was commissioned by Dr. Merrill Williams, who was then uh, in the Asian Fisheries Society, to undertake a desk review of the four major tuners of the Indo-Pacific. The task required that I research and then submit information under many headings. One of the headings was on social aspects, and my internet searches revealed two reports which so impressed me that they made me do a U-turn. One was a 2011 report by the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, authored by Eve de Conning, and it's called Transnational Organised Crime in the Fishing Industry, which focused on trafficking in-person smuggling of migrants and illicit drugs trafficking. The other report was a statement by Peter Sharples, was published in an SBC bulletin. It was called Letter from Mr. Abel Seaman, Pacific Islands crew member on board alien Landic Persena Sweep the Ocean. In all of my years as a fishery scientist, I'd never thought about the men who crew the vessels. I'd see them on vessels when the vessels were in port and even viewed them as lowlifes, never once considering them. So a whole new world was opened up to me, courtesy of those reports and my being asked to write about that aspect of the fisheries. Mind you, it isn't simply the rights of crewmen that interest me, it's also the rights of all victims of trafficking, on land or at sea. So Patricia, can you tell me about the work that you
0: and the Human Dignity Group do in the Pacific? What are the needs that you
1: are trying to address? Some of our members were engaged with an earlier non-government organisation called Pacific Dialogue. And in that NGO, we did a lot of awareness in Fiji on human trafficking or also modern day slavery. One of the things that struck us was that at the conclusion of our awareness session in any informal settlement, for example, we'd just leave, of course, we'd pack up and go home but also we'd leave our audience remaining in their situations of having to sell drugs or sex and accept very low wages just to survive. So here we'd been telling them about traffickers and the tricks that you fall into, but these people had no choice. So we thought we would give emphasis on creating jobs, even small ones. So the people living in very poor circumstances would gain a little more self-respect, that they could bring in some money to their families through fair or honest work. Human Dignity Group is a young organisation, but already we've started generating small incomes to a few people and we have big ideas of creating opportunities. We also like to raise awareness of slavery because we have the knowledge and skills to do that, and we wish to raise people's knowledge of their rights as people. So many in Fiji think that because they did not finish school or that they live in poor conditions, then they don't have any worth. Concerning the offshore fishing industry, we try to make it better from a social aspect, not only because of cruise rights, but also to ensure that the Western buying public would continue to buy Pacific tuna, that the fishery would be perceived internationally as having a high ethical standard. The Pacific nations need that, because without income from tuna, some of them would be struggling economically.
0: That's a really important point that you know the solution is not necessarily to just uh, abandon buying tuna because of the importance of the industry in the Pacific. Uh, but I did want to ask you, I mean, it's a great overview that you've provided about the role of your civil society organisation, but more generally, what What kind of role can civil society organisations play in combating modern-day slavery
1: and human trafficking at sea? Well, as you know, civil society organisations are not parts of government and private enterprise. So they're allowed to be open in what they say and do. They're independent. I must say, though, with our new company or NGO, Human Dignity Group, We've had a lot of trouble getting it registered here in Fiji. It's not just a matter of an ordinary company, but because we're identified as a human rights or an NGO that's independent, there's a little bit more constraints put on us here to register. But anyway, leaving that aside, (laughs) this ability to be independent can be very powerful. But on the other hand, civil society organisations to be squeaky clean ethically, they can't make up stories aimed at getting good coverage or more donors. They have to back themselves by sound investigations and research. Concerning modern day slavery at sea, civil society organisations have the ability to report on bad events that happen at sea. Doing that, however, needs people who understand the fishery, have contacts in various ports, translators, for example, and also have the resources to even challenge events in courts of law. And two of the major CSOs internationally, Environment Justice Federation and Greenpeace, have been able to do that on a few occasions. CSOs also need to talk with the crewmen, something that we view as very important. There are many things that happen at sea. They fell overboard, that's a quote, seem to be very common. But sadly, these events are rarely investigated because of the very high value of some fisheries like the tuna fishery and the political leverage of some fishing fleets to the flag countries. So, reporting and investigating can be a little bit dangerous. But even large companies need undereducated men, uh, poor men, to bring in the fish. The abuse of those men who went to work on the vessels just so they could earn money for their families should always be called out. And let's not forget the fisheries observers who are always in danger when they go to sea on Pacific longline vessels, because their work is to report independently on the catch and the fishing activity. Uh, They're not very popular on board quite often. The Association of Professional Observers, uh, based in America, has uh, quite many records where fisheries observers have disappeared quote-unquote, overboard. Wow. So that's what we look at. We think that CSOs are the only ones who can raise awareness on uh, slavery at sea. But, of course, because things are at sea, uh, they're hard to look at. I mean, you can't see what's happening on a boat out on the ocean. So you have to try and get very good contacts.
0: So from where you're sitting in Fiji, what... Do you see as being the biggest obstacle for improving labour conditions on foreign flagged fishing vessels?
1: There's a lot of obstacles, (laughs) but uh, goodness me. Probably the biggest one is the fishing companies need to make money. But the act of fishing, here I'm talking about offshore fishing, mainly for tuna, is extremely expensive. And many fishing companies have bank loans to repay, so they have to work hard and cut corners to manage to do those repayments. But if you look at the vessels, they have fixed costs, such as fuel. They can't negotiate around price of fuel. They've got their access fees that are unnegotiable. They've got to buy equipment and obviously their vessel. They've got to purchase bait, uh, fresh water, food, and so on. and carry out maintenance, and they can't be tampered with. They're like fixed costs, but the ones that can be tampered with are what you'd call variable costs. So in some places that'd be food, especially for some of the lower ranks of crew, but also for the labour. So it means that you can pay less for the labour on the vessels because you've got quite a big uh, fixed costs, and you have to obviously make money. The second biggest obstacle to improving labour conditions is the availability of labour, of unskilled labour. So, for example, if you look at it, if you had a men who, on a company's vessels, all going on strike, wanting to go on strike, well, if they did, then the company would just replace them with other men mm. from the port who'd willingly take their place. So the negotiating ability of labour is highly limited. And another one, a third one, and this is a bit uncomfortable, is the concern by some Pacific governments that they cannot insist on better conditions for their local crew on the vessels because the government depends on the access fees paid by the fishing companies. Right. In other words, it is better to turn a blind eye to poor conditions and treatment even of your compatriots than to upset the fishing company because the company just might leave your waters, your E said, and therefore you lose out on their access fees, which unfortunately are very important to some government's operations, like some of the atoll countries, In the Pacific, they have very limited alternative resources, so they're dependent on the access fees. And the fourth one is regional fisheries managers who are familiar with conditions on the vessels. They should be educated on what is slavery, and therefore they should report it and implement the guidelines that actually do exist for compliance. So they're just the four that Myself and my colleague thought were the major obstacles. So in a
0: similar vein, when fishers return home, what do you see as being the biggest challenges in accessing justice? I imagine some of the challenges that you just outlined might be relevant
1: here as well. Because vessel companies usually target young folk who didn't finish school, like, you know, they leave school at fifteen or sixteen and then of course, you know, they're happy go lucky for a while, but then they grow up and they fall in love and they get married and have families, and that's when they really need work. So these people are accept anything, well almost. So the first problem to accessing justice is the crewmen's or the fish's ignorance of how to access justice and probably is actually knowing what justice is, because probably in their life, they haven't had a fair deal, eh? For example, we've found uh, quite a number of the crew been working on the vessels. They didn't even know they were supposed to have a contract, and they didn't know they were supposed to have a pay slip to show what money they'd earned. And another thing, even though probably regional legislation says that the fishing companies is supposed to provide protective gear like your boots and your raincoat and hood and so on. Almost uniformly, the men are deducted the cost of, or the purported cost of this equipment from their wages. They say that they have to pay like between 75 and $90 for a pair of boots and similarly for raincoats. And that's actually against the law but it's because the men don't know this and also as you could imagine they might know it but again if they jump up and down about it they won't get another job on the vessel so then they'll have to go and look for work elsewhere a thing that we've found very confronting is that a lot of the men think they're not worth anything better like a fellow just uh, 10 days ago, I looked at his pay slip and he was getting $20 a day, Fiji dollars. But the pay slips only record the official, like from 9 o'clock in the morning till 5 in the afternoon. But they don't record that the fellow or any of these men worked into the night, often into the early morning hours. So that's basically free labor, free work. But their pay slip only records daylight hours. You can just imagine these people think that that's all they're worth because they didn't finish school, eh? They live in a settlement. They don't have all sorts of other things. They just keep quiet. They accept what's given to them. I've mentioned up that if you make a noise, you make trouble. They don't want you back on board. And on the administrative side, few civil society organisations or government agency know much about what goes on on a fishing vessel. So if a crewman actually gets to complain to the quote-unquote relevant authority, that authority doesn't know how to handle the complaint and may dismiss it. In Fiji, for example, we've been involved, or we've seen examples of foreign crewmen actually making their way to the nearest police post with valid complaints about the conditions they've had on board a vessel only to be taken back to the vessels by the police from which they'd escaped because the police person had no knowledge of protocols and rights in the fishery. So it raises this challenge to CSOs that if you want to support the better standards and uh, ethics in the Pacific regional tuna fishery, You have to do a lot of homework and to start to find out what really goes on.
0: What would you like to see governments or international institutions do more of in order to reduce the instance and the impact of modern-day slavery and human trafficking
1: at sea? I just mentioned one of them, that more civil society organisations, at least, should learn about what goes on in the fisheries and report them in publications, and publications that have wide circulation. There are also uh, seamen's groups, there's also a number of web sites where people can look up information, and so that can be disseminated. But as to governments, one of them is the international labour organisations, work in fishing convention it's put out in 2007. now there's a number of countries around the world who've agreed to that and interestingly some of them are land-bound countries but as far as i know up till recently no pacific islands country or pacific rim country has agreed to that convention so an alternative that the government should do, the Pacific governments, is is accede to the foreign fisheries agencies' 2019 revised harmonised minimum terms and conditions protocols. Foreign fisheries agency is like, it's a spokesperson for the member countries, which are the Pacific Island countries. So it's easy to say, yes, I'll accede to it, but the key is that the countries then have to seek support from the FFA to implement the conditions. So it's like getting FFA to come over to you and run workshops and trainings and so on of what the minimum terms and conditions are and teach people. So, But without members seeking that support, the safeguards built into the minimum terms and conditions are useless it's one thing to exceed but you've got to actually get the training to do it so moving on government should encourage the training of all crewmen from basic deckhands to master and target their own nationals to work on the vessels unfortunately it seems uh, with no disrespect to pacific rim countries but there seems that a lot of the um, fishing Fleet companies that operate in the Pacific are quite happy to employ nationals from other countries to work on the fishing vessels instead of the nationals of Pacific Island countries, because after all, the tuna belonged to the Pacific Island countries. So we'd prefer to engage local crew instead of foreign crew. Papua New Guinea has taken action on this concerning STCW certificates. STCW is the Standards in Training and Certification in Watch Keeping. Unfortunately, STCW only applies to merchant vessels and not fishing vessels, But it's pleasing to see the initiative taken by PNG because it sets the bar a little bit higher on merchant fleets and can ultimately lead to other Pacific nations following suit and extending certificate requirements to the fishery sector. Another matter is that government should set minimum pay levels for all seafarers, so different ranks on a vessel there should be minimum payment set. Unfortunately, in Fiji that's not set and I believe in it's not set in many countries around the world and so that leads to abuse. Governments should apply the rules that they apply to their own vessels that are registered in their own countries to the registered foreign longline fleets which come in to ensure the crew are all certified and that vessels are sound and in good working order. Some of the vessels that come into Fiji ports just wouldn't pass a survey. But unfortunately, because they need the money, men go out on those vessels for some months or weeks at a time. This is one of the things that I really feel strongly about. Obligatory real-time reporting of crew lists and of accidents and transshipping in the pacific waters there are many examples where crew are transshipped from one vessel to another in a company's fleet and so when the different vessels come back into port the crew lists don't match so i view this as a very important thing when someone transships it has to be recorded on the logs of both the vessel that they went off and the vessel that they're coming to. Because if you don't have that, some of these crew just quote unquote disappear. They're not accounted for. They just didn't roll up anywhere in the world. And so to me, it's a safety precaution for the men to match the inward and outward bound personnel on crew list. It should be given to immigration and to other flag state authorities. It just means that the lives of the men are accountable, all the crewmen. And finally, recruiting agents. Some nations have legislation provisions on recruiting agents, but either those agents often bypass those provisions and recruit in-house recruiting agents, or the authorities lack the resources to check agents. And this leads those agents or new agents to set up as illegally, and that you have questionable procedures. Recruiting agents' abilities and power to negatively affect the lives of men should be curbed. We hear of, and we talk with some foreign crew here that come in on Fiji, and they, some of them have never been on a vessel in their lives. They just went to a recruiting agent in uh, Jakarta or in Manila or something looking for a job, and next minute they're stuck on a fishing vessel. It must be a horrific experience for many of those men. So we just think that recruiting agents, that they should be looked at as well. I've given you a long list (laughs) of things. So you can see this is going to take a lot of work. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: And look, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, Patricia. It's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. In the final episode, we'll be joined again by Associate Professor Sally Yeh, who will take us through the process of researching the report and what she hopes to achieve from it. You've been listening to The Catch, a podcast mini-series produced by La Trobe Asia. You can find the report on the La Trobe Asia website. Our theme music is Fruition by Edoi. This podcast was developed with the support from the United States Agency for International Development. The views do not necessarily reflect those of USAID. I'm Beck Strading, and thanks for listening.